You cannot have a relationship with Christ until you understand the distance that we have from Him. And that's the reason why He came to these shepherds first. If you're looking for a religion that has both arrogance, prominence, and leveraging of prestige, Christianity is not for you. This is Living a Legacy with Bible teacher and author Dr. Crawford Loretz. When Jesus was on this earth, he didn't hang out with royalty. He hung out with society's cast-offs, those who were despised and ignored. Why? Because, as Jesus said, he came to seek and to save those who were lost, those who needed him most. In the Christmas story, perhaps that's why the angel appeared before dirty, stinky shepherds and not before kings. And what those shepherds got to experience was astounding. Please join us for our study. Crawford has been teaching and sharing the Word of God for over 50 years. He served as a pastor, conference speaker, and seminary professor. His books include Leadership as an Identity, Unshaken, and one titled Your Marriage Today and Tomorrow, co-authored by Karen Loritz. Crawford served for 15 years as senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church in Roswell, Georgia, and the messages you hear on Living a Legacy come from his pastoral ministry at Fellowship. Now retired from church work, Crawford heads the Christian Leadership Mentoring Program called Beyond Our Generation. Well, our study today takes us to Luke chapter 2, and we're beginning a series called The Glory of Christmas, and it will take us through the Christmas season. What does the glory of God look like, and what was its purpose? Let's find out. Here's Crawford to present the message, The Glory of His Birth. Again, we're in Luke chapter 2. Let's study together here on Living a Legacy. Have you ever been in the presence of someone or met someone who's very, very famous? You know what happens typically if you don't know him or hadn't heard a lot about him, but you just seen him in the newspapers or heard in the newspaper or seen him on TV or whatever it is, and their notoriety is larger than life, when you meet them, chances are you're very, very self-conscious, aren't you? And you typically go to the restroom, make sure nothing's hanging from your nose and, you know, or in between your teeth and all the zippers are in the right location. And, uh, you know, and you think about what you're going to say because you don't want to say something stupid. And so you, you, you do that. Some years ago, I, when I, uh, I, I, I did a lot more speaking for professional sports teams than I, than I do now, but I, I did a lot of speaking for the uh, Atlanta Braves. And I had a friend of mine that had a friend who he said was a Braves fanatic and that he would give anything just to go and sit in one of the chapel services. And so what we're arranging back then before all the security stuff, you could kind of do that and they didn't mind but uh, I bring this guy with me and we go into the we go into the clubhouse well you know it was a mistake he he was he was so overwhelmed and so enthralled it was like he was worshiping I had to tell him close your mouth something's drooling on the left side buddy come on man and uh, he was I guess you could say he was smitten by their glory. What does glory mean? What does glory mean? We talk about glory, but what, what in the world does glory mean? Glory is a very dominant word in the Bible. Um, there, there are two words, two big words for glory. Not big in the sense that the words are big, but what they imply 
is huge and big. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is kabod. That, that word means, whenever you read kabod in the Old Testament, it, it, means, it means the weight of God, the, the heaviness of God. Not, not literal heaviness, but heaviness in the sense of seriousness, um, sobriety. It, it, it also means the worth of God, his worthiness, kabod. The word, the word heavy, the word awesome, has its roots in the concept of glory. Kabod, the weightiness of God. In the New Testament, there's a word called doxa. And in the New Testament, we use the term doxa. It's always uh, in reference to the demonstration or the revelation of the person and work of God in Christ Jesus. Doxa. Because of time, I won't read this text, but you might want to jot down Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. God's glory is his person and his presence. Let me see if I can sort of say it more succinctly here. I think that there are three words that define the whole concept of the glory of God from from Genesis to Revelation. Three words. It, It is the word magnificence. Magnificence. When you say glory, what you're really saying is, is the awesome beauty of God. There's nothing that is more stunning, it's more brilliant, that's more attractive. He's magnificent. Secondly, when you say glory, it, 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 it can refer to his preeminence. Meaning that where God is, there's not room for anybody or anything else. That he fills the place. God doesn't do double billing. It's not me and God. Wherever God is, people fall on their face. Wherever God shows up, people see the distance. So glory means preeminence. It means magnificence. Preeminence is the third word. Glory means Excellence in its true sense of the word, meaning, meaning utter perfection and utter holiness, uh, absolute purity. And so I want to encourage us not to trivialize the word glory. I want to encourage us not to prostitute it the way we have awesome. For when you say glory or something is glorious, you're saying something is godlike bears his beauty, it bears his immense presence, it, it bears his, his purity. Now quickly, back to the text, we're going to talk about the glory of Jesus and this announcement to the shepherds, the glory, the glory of his birth. And for the sake of time, I want to make three observations about this announcement. Surrounding his birth, there's glory on earth, there's glory in heaven, and then there's glory in Jesus. And you got to understand that these shepherds are all of a sudden immersed in glory. First of all, there is glory on earth. Look at verse 8, if you will. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. What you have to understand, and this story is being told by Luke, is that these shepherds were minding their own, own business. What is about ready to take place is totally unanticipated. They didn't wake up one, that morning sensing that something supernatural was going to happen. They got up 
out of the tent, did what they normally did, and they just looked over their flock. In fact, the truth of the matter is, they may have been caring for lambs which were destined for sacrifice during the time of Passover. This is what they did. Secondly, they're startled. Look at the next line of verse 9. It says, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. I mean, connect the dots. Mind you, you're out there just minding your own business. You're watching your own sheep. You're talking to Levi over here who says something to Samuel over here and said, You know, we got some sheep that got out over here. They're about 50 yards down here. Bring them back over, and all of a sudden, bam! The angel of the Lord, probably Gabriel, whose chief job it was to announce new things. Gabriel shows up. There's light all around them. And the glory of the Lord, his, his, his magnificence, his preeminence, his, his excellence. And by the way, by the way, whenever you read accounts of the glory of the Lord, um, um, the, 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 the writers cannot find adequate words to describe what literally happened. That's what the shepherds felt. It's almost like, well, somebody explain to me how in one minute I'm talking to Samuel about which lambs we're going to take to the temple for sacrifice. And there's this angel. And there's this brilliance. And I'm scared to move. I don't know what's happened to me. They are startled. Well, the announcement is made. The glory of the Lord is there. And the angel, Gabriel, senses that they are overwhelmed, calms them. In verse 10, listen to what he says. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. He says, don't, don't be afraid. Don't, don't be afraid. I'm not here to kill you. You're not going to die. In fact, I'm here to give you something that is so, so life-giving. I bring you good news of great joy that shall be to all the people. It is wonderful. And by the way, the glory of God dramatically is revealed in human history as you read the scriptures. Uh, I'm going to use a theological term. Hang in there. In redemptive history, you can chart new things that God does by the expression of his glory. Uh, you know it well. Pick on anybody. Exodus chapter 3, Moses. When God wanted to deliver the children of Israel, it was such a humongous task and such a new thing that he wanted to do. What did he do? His glory, his, his, his magnificence, his preeminence, his excellence shows up in a burning bush. You recall when Moses gets stuck on the mountain, he's profoundly discouraged because of the disobedience of the children of Israel and how they, how, how they could care less about God and they've defamed his glory. And he didn't know if God's going to kill them all. What does he say? We saw it up here with the kids. Moses says, God, show me your glory. And he does. When God wanted to get the world ready, ready for the coming of the Messiah, what does he do? Here Isaiah is going up to the temple to mourn the death of Uzziah, 
who, by the way, prostituted the glory of God. And while he's in that temple mourning the death, what happens? He gets this vision of the glory of God. And from that point on, he becomes the greatest messianic prophet in the Old Testament. And once again, when God wants to do something incredible, he wants to mark a new thing, the greatest thing. Gabriel appears before the shepherds. But I have a question. I got to tell you, through the years, I have referred to this passage before. I've preached on this before. But each time I've had this question, but I never dove into it. But this time I did. The question is this. Why shepherds? Why, why, why did Gabriel come and appear before shepherds? Why didn't he appear before a king? Why didn't he appear before a priest? Why shepherds? Why didn't he appear before the religious leaders, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and rattle their cage and straighten them out? Why shepherds? And in, and, and in fact, when you understand what shepherds were during his time, shepherds were outcasts in Israel. There was not a job more despicable to Jews than that of being a shepherd. Uh, their work made them ceremonially unclean and kept them away from temple worship for weeks on end. That's sort of counterintuitive. You would think that if God was thinking strategically, then my goodness, he would go to the dudes in charge and he would rattle their cages and he would line them up because they've got influence. You see, the way Jesus came elevates the problem that he was going to solve. Jesus came to identify with the poor, the outcasts, the disenfranchised, those who knew that they had a need. Now, don't, don't hear me. Don't say, well, Crawford, are you saying God is bigoted and just because I have money and resources, live in a nice place, have a nice education and this kind of thing, that God's not concerned about me? No, 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 you're missing the point. You cannot come to Jesus until you embrace your neediness. That's the point. You, you cannot have a relationship with Christ until you understand the distance that we have from him. And that's the reason why he came to these shepherds first. And by the way, by the way, the greatest king that Israel ever had was a shepherd. The reason why David wasn't there when Samuel was interviewing the next king was because his brothers and father knew that he had a despicable occupation. And not only that, Jesus himself identifies himself in John chapter 10 as the good shepherd. And John, when he sees him coming in John chapter 1 verse 29, says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you're looking for a religion that has both arrogance, prominence, and leveraging of prestige, Christianity is not for you. Only when we all realize that morally we are shepherds too. There's glory on the earth. But secondly, in the text, there's glory in heaven. You know, as you see, and I love the way Luke writes, you know, he's a doctor, he's very detailed and sequential. The angel knew that these folks needed some verification. So, mind you, connect the dots, 
They were minding their own business. They didn't ask for this revelation or this experience. They're hit with it. They're shocked, scared to death. He relieves them. Now to affirm what is being said, the angels show up. Look at the prepositional phrase in verse, uh, drop your eye down to verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying. It's as if God says, look, not only am I sending Gabriel, not only are you smitten by my glory, my, my, my magnificence, preeminence, and excellence, but I also want to affirm what I have to say by the presence of the heavenly, heavenly host. There's the affirmation of heaven, but there's also in verse 14, the applause of heaven. They're witnessing the worship and joy that belongs to heaven over this long-awaited announcement. They say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. We give standing ovations because a performance exceeds our expectations, don't we? On Friday night, Karen and I went to hear this guy speak. I just need to be honest with you that I think I was going to enjoy not because he's not a great speaker, just because some of his views on stuff I don't necessarily agree with, but we went anyway. Well, I gotta tell you, his presentation was incredible. So at the very end, it was like an involuntary thing. You know, sometimes you give a standing ovation simply because you, you wanna encourage, or everybody else stands up, so I don't wanna look like a fool, so. But this was like, you ever hear something that's so spectacular that you're pulled out of your seat? This is one of these deals. We were all just pulled out of our seats. Well, this is the experience here. The angels are rejoicing. And again, because of time, I'm not going to go there, but I want you to jot down Ephesians chapter 1. Read that chapter. It'll tell you the reason why these angels are rejoicing because God pulled the trigger on his plan of salvation. Jesus didn't come as an afterthought in the plan of God. He didn't come because Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and because they disobeyed God, then, of course, we instituted the law. Now we have the law and the sacrifices and this kind of thing. Well, that wasn't really good enough. So God sits up there and has some focus groups and some meetings and this kind of thing. How are we going to solve this problem? Okay, now let's decide that we're going to send Jesus. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. The Bible teaches that before the foundations of the world, it was determined that Jesus would come and die. The angels knew that theology, they just did not know the clock or the calendar. So in the fullness of time, God pulls the trigger on his eternal purposes. So they are rejoicing. Rejoicing. It's almost as if We've been waiting for this deliverer to arrive. Our backs are up against the wall. The, we're staring down the enemy, and we're staring down certain death. And we're wondering, is there any hope? Some of you are here just like that today. You came here with your shoulders slumped. And you came here wondering in your heart of hearts, what will happen to me if I die? Some of you are controlled by 
uh, a sinful habit that you wish you could shed. Some of you today that I'm talking to right now, you're living in quiet desperation. And as a shepherd, I need to be honest and say to you that there are believers in here who are living in sin and you're living a duplicitous life. And although you are a believer, at the same time, you've allowed habits and sin and other things to just drain the hope from you. And you're playing a game. And you too are wondering, is there any hope for me? The angels are still singing because the glory of God is here. If you will acknowledge, if you will acknowledge how weak you are, if you will acknowledge your need, he'll come and cleanse you. He'll come and forgive you. He'll come and put you back together. He will come. I can only speak for my own walk in relationship with the Lord. My times of deliverance and victory in areas in which I've struggled have only come when I have humbled myself and acknowledged that I don't have what it needs. God, help me. He will come. There's glory on the earth. There's glory in heaven. There's glory in Jesus. Back up to verse 11. For context persons, pick it up in verse 10. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. Here's the line, for. <laughs> Here's the reason why it's great news, great joy. Here's the reason, for, for, unto you is born this day. I love the emphatic. For unto you is born this day, the historic nature in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Can you imagine? Listen, look at the juxtaposition of this. Shepherds, outcast, give it a message for all the people. Not only does he bring me dignity and value, he makes me a participant in a message that is going to be for everybody. The word Savior unto you is born this day, at this moment in history. God pulled the trigger is a deliverer. Savior. Whether it's Kabod in the Old Testament or Doxa in the New Testament, the focal point of all human history, hallelujah, is the everlasting Son of God. He is no accident. All that God does is focused on Jesus. Crawford Loritz, our speaker here on Living a Legacy, a powerful message about the glory of his birth from Luke chapter 2. It's from Crawford's series, The Glory of Christmas, and we'll hear about the glory of Jesus' life next week. Crawford's Bible teaching is available to hear anytime on our website. If you miss out on one of his messages, just go to livingalegacy.org and look for the link called Past Programs, livingalegacy.org and Past Programs. If you join us regularly for this program, please let us know. It's never good to have one-sided communication. Your email will make it two-sided, and we'd be very grateful. In fact, it helps assure Crawford that this weekly program is meeting a spiritual need in your life. Write to legacyatmoody.edu, legacyatmoody.edu. For Crawford Loritz, I'm Bill Davis. 
This program is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.